it is good to be here. Uh, I looked at that brochure, and I'm still waiting for that guy to show up. <laughs> I owe those guys a lot of money, and so uh, I, I guess they had to say something good about me. But it is a pleasure for us to be here. The third time that uh, we have been in this community and driven around and seen it and met people, and uh, it has been uh, something that the Lord has continually put on our hearts. Uh, quite frankly, we are surprised that we are here. Uh, but the Lord has obviously uh, done something in our lives uh, to bring us to this point, and so we look forward to uh, this time around the Word. And I hope that, uh, I know curiosity is, is a thing of human nature, but I hope that during these moments that we have together that uh, you'll not worry so much about the messenger as you will the message, Amen. and that you will uh, be a lot more concerned about what the Holy Spirit says to you than what I say to you. Uh, I think the key to good preaching is good listening. I know because I've had some great sermons run by some sorry listeners. <laughs> so I, uh, I hope that you'll listen. I hope that you are praying for uh, anointed preaching, but I also hope that you're praying that you would have anointed ears to hear what God has to say to you. And I want to ask you to take your copy of the Scripture out, please, and turn to the book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. And if you would stand, please, in honor of God's Word, as we read 1 Timothy chapter 2, and you follow along in your translation, and let me read, please, uh, beginning with verse 1. 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come into the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Whereunto I am ordained a preacher and an apostle, I speak the truth in Christ and lie not, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and verity. I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Then if you would turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18. Some months ago in uh, our church in Oklahoma, we began studying this matter of spiritual warfare. And I spent about 11 weeks going through Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18, where Paul deals with our armor. He talks about three things in Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. He talks about the adversary. He talks about our armor. And then he talks about our assignment. Our assignment is twofold. It is to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And then in verse 18, he comes to the second part of that assignment, and that is found in these words, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. I want to speak to you this morning on the subject of warfare praying. Warfare praying. And let me ask you to pray with me, please, at this time. Father... I thank you for your word. I thank you that we do not preach the opinions of men, nor do we preach the speculations 
of even what we would consider great minds. I thank you, Father, that we preach Christ Jesus and Him crucified. Thank you, Father, for a word that is given to us, that is inspired to give us life and light. I thank you for the truth that came in flesh and dwelt among us. Lord, I thank you for the power that's found from your word, that you have chosen to honor your word and to honor those who will listen and receive and respond to your word. And so, Lord, I pray that your word might break forth on our hearts this morning, that we might see and hear and know what it means to lay hold of you in prayer. For I pray it in the name of Jesus, who is the living Word of God. Amen. You may be seated. One of the things that, as I began to study this Ephesians 6 passage, and we'll go back to the First Timothy passage in just a moment. One of the things I began to learn is that verse 18 is often left out when you talk about this matter of spiritual warfare. We have been fighting many times in our churches the wrong battles. We have majored on minors. We have focused in the physical realm and not dealt with the spiritual realm. Ephesians 6.18 reminds us that all the armor that we are given, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, our loins gird with truth, our feet shod with the gospel of peace, that passage tells us how we are to be equipped spiritually for one thing, and that is for prayer. Spiritual warfare is fought in the realm of prayer. It is not a physical battle, and yet we understand that prayer involves a physical commitment, but it is a spiritual battle. And many times churches lose out because they do not understand, they do not comprehend that God has told them to work in the realm of the spiritual, not so much in the realm of the physical. We get all caught up don't we? It's budget time here. It's been budget time. We just voted on ours uh, two weeks ago, and, and uh, it's budget time. We get involved in committees and budgets and buildings and programs and organizations and plans, and what we have a tendency to do if we're not careful is we come up with our plan, and then we lay it out before God and say, now, God, here's our plan. Would you bless it? God wants us to work the other way. He wants us to get along with him and find out he, what he wants to do, and then he will bless it. I have a cousin who's on the mission field in Kenya. He's been there since 1985. Since 1985 in Kenya, there have been 257 churches started and 100,000 people saved in a Muslim country. There have been about 458 new pastors, nationals, raised out of that country. When he went there, they almost wouldn't let him get in. In fact, he only got a 51% vote uh, from the mission people there in Kenya. And I thought, well, if I get a 51% vote here, I'll be okay. And so, uh, but he didn't, get, he didn't get a great response because he said, well, uh, Dr. Bethay, what are you going to do? He said, I don't know yet. God hadn't told me. He said, well, he sent you over here to the mission field. What are you going to do? He said, I'm going to get on my face before God, and I'm going to see who will pray with me, and we're going to lay hold of the throne of God, and we're going to find out what God wants us to do. And he didn't do one thing for three months except have people praying around the clock. Now, in the 30 years prior to his going to Kenya, Southern Baptists had had missionaries there for 30 years. They had started five churches 
and had 120 believers. Since three months of prayer, there have been 100,000 believers, 257 new churches. They don't have buildings. They meet out under trees. If they've got a tin roof, they consider themselves to have a building. They've got 700 and 800 people at one time meeting out under a tree. Most of the people there don't have Bibles. But they've seen the power of God come down in that place because of prayer. I would submit to you this morning that the issue is not what we do. It is who we are before God. The story is told in Lawrence of Arabia where he brought some Egyptian chieftains into Paris for a peace conference, a summit conference. And in bringing those men to Paris, he brought them in and they stayed in a nice five-star hotel and they were driven around in luxury cars and they met in these elaborate conference rooms and, and they were all impressed by this. They had never seen anything like this in Egypt at that time. But the thing that impressed these Egyptian chieftains the most was that when they went in the room, they could turn a knob and water would come out of this faucet. They didn't understand running water inside a room. And when they were to leave Paris, these Egyptian chieftains were found trying to chisel these spigots, these faucets, off the wall so that they could take them back with them to Egypt and have running water. You see, what they didn't understand was the difference between the spigot and the source. They didn't understand that you can turn that knob all day long, but if there's not power behind that knob, nothing will come out. If there's not water pressure there, nothing will come out. And they did not understand the difference between spigots and the source. What I want us to see this morning is the difference between the spigot and the source. Our warfare is in the area of prayer. Our enemy is defeated by prayer. He is not defeated because we learn a lot of facts about the New Age. Now, we need to know about the New Age. We need to understand it. We need to also realize that Shirley MacLaine is walking around when she should be locked up. Uh, she's been out on a limb a long time. She just had to write a book about it. Uh, we don't need to know all about reincarnation and all about the cults and the occults and everything else. When you know the truth, you recognize falsehood. You see, the way to know heresy and the way to know error is to bathe your life in the truth of the Word of God. Then you recognize error. What we have a tendency to do is go out and try to learn as much as we can about the error. Friends, when you know Jesus Christ and when you know Him in a personal way and when you know Him through His Word, He will always speak to your heart when there's error. You don't have to get a book to find out where there's error. His Holy Spirit will speak to you and tell you where there's not truth. The battle is in the realm of the spiritual. It's not taking study courses. It is not studying about reincarnation and reading all these books. It is being alone with God and understanding that we are fighting against principalities and powers and rulers in heavenly places. We are fighting a spiritual war. Now, I want you to turn back, if you would, to 1 Timothy chapter 2, for I want you to see some things there. I believe this is no time for a Christian soldier to be AWOL. In fact, careful organizing without prayerful agonizing is an absolute disaster. You can put together the nicest program you want to put together, you can get everybody with all the ducks in the row and everything spit and polished and shined and all cleaned up. You can get it all done. 
But if there hasn't been prayerful agonizing that has gone on, nothing will happen. You see, a lot of churches hold revivals. They plan them. They get it all lined up. They get packed the pew. They get everything working out. You know, I'm kind of like Dr. Havner. I just like somebody to quit holding revivals and somebody start turning one loose. That's what needs to happen, and that happens because of prayer. When God's people get along with God and do business with God to see what He wants to do, the first thing I want you to see this morning is the character of prayer, and it's found in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. The character of prayer. Notice that he uses this little phrase, first of all. He is not talking about something that is first in time as much as the Greek emphasizes that it is first in priority that we get our priorities straight, that the first thing we do is have supplications and prayers and petitions and giving of thanks. We get our priorities straight and learn that praying is the first thing we do. Paul says to Timothy, the first thing you do, Timothy, is pray. The first thing I want you to do, the first in your matter of priorities, is your prayer life, your commitment to prayer. And then he uses some words that relate to prayer. We usually just use one word, and Paul uses several, so we'll go with Paul. He says, first of all, supplications. That word simply means request. It is praying in relation to the mercy of God. Praying in relation to the mercy of God. All of us in this room that have experienced salvation have experienced the mercy of God. If you are healthy this morning, it is by the mercy and the grace of God that you are. If you have life and happiness and if you can do anything, and if you can function, it is all by God's mercy and by His grace. People say, well, it's because we're so much more conscious now about cholesterol and everything else. And, and I had a lady stop me this past week. She said, you know, the problem's not cholesterol, don't you? And I thought, oh, no, I've been watching cholesterol. Now what have I got to watch? She said, the problem's chlorine in the water. <laughs> And I thought, I'm in trouble because i got to have water to live. So I've decided all of it's going to kill us at some point. So let's just all eat chocolate, you know. <laughs> it's the mercy of God. God has shown his mercy toward us. He has been good to us. He has been gracious to us. And so we make our supplications not begging a God who is indifferent to us, but a God who has heaped upon his people mercy and grace and goodness and love and kindness. We go to God because we know God's good. That's why we go to him. That's why we make our supplications. And then he uses the word prayers. That word prayers is praying in relation to God's promises. It has to do, the idea that Paul has in mind is that, is that you pray in light of what you know the Word of God says. You pray in light of God's promises. You see, to not believe in the authority of Scripture and to not take Scripture into your prayer time is to make yourself an ineffective prayer. To not understand that God puts the Word and prayer together, and there are two ways that He does that. First of all, in this matter of prayer, there is holding the Word up to God. 1 John chapter 5 says this is the confidence that we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. People say, well, I don't know what God's will is. God's will is found in his word. That's where you find God's will. The principles are there. 
the principles for finding God's Word. And so you take the Word of God, and when you pray, you stand on the promises of Christ my King, and you say, God, according to what you have said in your Word, I have not gone out here and hunt and pecked and pulled a, a text out of context, but I have studied your Word. I have prayed. I know what your Word says. I understand how you speak through your Word. I accept the authority of your Word. And you have said that if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and heal their land. And so, God, on the authority of your word, I'm asking you to do that. And see, God's either got to do that or God's a liar because he's given us his word to stand on. And so we stand on the word of God and we hold the word up to God. The Bible is not a wish book and God is not an ecclesiastical bellhop. But he has chosen somehow in his sovereign grace to work through his word. Not only do you hold the word of God, the word up to God, but you hold the word up against Satan. The psalmist says in Psalm 60, Through God we shall do valiantly, and it is he who will tread down our enemies or our adversaries. It is God who treads it down. I got to thinking about something not long ago. I got to thinking about Christ and when he was at the Mount of Temptation. Do you realize how simple he dealt with the devil? How simply it was handled? When Satan came to him and tempted him three times, he didn't say, uh, Satan, you obviously hadn't seen my birth certificate. I'm virgin born. Uh, you obviously uh, haven't looked at my resume. I've confounded the rabbis and I've attended this school and done this and done that and gone here and gone there and I've preached here and preached there and, and uh, you obviously haven't understood exactly who I am. See, Jesus never brought his deity before Satan. He brought the word before Satan. And three times he said, It is written. You see, we need to come back and understand that Satan has to back down when the Word of God is given to him. He can't stand the preaching of the Word. He can't stand the Word to be quoted to him. He can't stand to hear what God has said because when you say what God says and you, when you agree with what God says, then you are standing on a more solid ground than you've ever stood in your life. And he cannot stand that. And the reason that he wants his people ignorant of the word, doubting the word, is because he knows when you pray, there's no power. There's no impact that is made because the power is gone because you don't believe the foundation. And that is holding the word up to God and to Satan. Then he uses the word intercessions. That word intercessions can be translated petitions, and it means an approach to a superior in order to know his will. An approach to a superior in order to know his will. It is going before God with an intimate relationship. The prophet Isaiah said these words, and he saw that there was no man, and that there was uh, astonished that there was no one to intercede. Intercessory prayer. We talk about it. We don't do it much. We talk about prayer. We talk about a burden. But we don't have many burdens. It's been a long time since I've seen people stay way past an appointed hour to soak a carpet with tears. 
because of somebody that's not saved. Let me give you a principle. When we cease to bleed, we cease to bless. There has to be a laying down of our lives in intercession for other people. We have to pray for people who don't want to be prayed for. We have to pray for people who don't know they're being prayed for. It is intercessory prayer. It is going before God on an intimate relationship with Him and saying, God, I know you. I know your heart. I know your word. I know your mercy. I know your promises. I know what you desire. And because I'm familiar with you, I lay these needs. I lay these people. I lay these situations before your feet and ask you to move in an unseen realm and do what cannot be explained. You see, we always want God to do something to His glory, but we have a tendency to want to take credit for it. Intercessory prayer says, God, I want you to do something that is so incredible that nobody can get credit except the Lord. Nobody can get glory. We can't sit down and say, boy, we put that one together, didn't we? But we look at it and we stand back from it and we say, God, you did something we can't explain. Intercession. Fourth word is thanksgivings or giving of thanks. It is praying in relation to God's goodness. Praying in relation to God's goodness. God's been good to you, hadn't he? God's been good to you, hadn't he? I mean, he saved you. That's enough to thank him for for all eternity, I would think. Cleansed you from your sin. Gave you a new life. Answered some of your supplications. Met the needs that you had prayed about brought reality to some of your intercessions. Those are things to thank Him for. I say, God, you've been so good, and I haven't deserved a bit of it. It's not because I'm active in the church, not because I hold an office in the church. You just have, in your mercy and in your grace, heard my prayers and heard my supplications, heard my intercessions, and I want to thank you. I just want to go before you and thank you for all you've done for me. Second point is this, the comprehensiveness of prayer. The comprehensiveness of prayer. There's two things that he mentions there. One is subjects, and the other one has to do with the objects. The subjects, you'll find in those words, all men, kings, and all in authority. Why are we to pray for all men, kings, and all in their authority? Because our warfare is not with the Supreme Court. Although we might get a vote on that today. Our warfare is not with Republicans or Democrats or the city council. Friends, our warfare is with an evil enemy who reigns in hell. And until we begin to pray for God consciousness and from conviction of the Holy Spirit on kings and all men and men in authority, we have not yet understood the comprehensiveness of prayer. You see, it's easier to pick it than it is to pray. It's easier to make a phone call than it is to pray. But who will go before God and say, God, whatever you have to do in that man's life to get him to think with the mind of Christ, you do it. You do it. The comprehensiveness of prayer that we pray for these men. And the objects of our prayer are twofold. It's found in verses 2 and 3 and 4. First of all, God desires national righteousness. Notice that he says that we might lead a tranquil and quiet life. A quiet life, a peaceable life that we might have national righteousness. You see, awakenings bring about righteousness. 
the great awakenings that have happened in our past and in Christian history have staved off more social upheaval than you can ever imagine. They have brought about great social reform, the abolition of slavery, the end of uh, child labor misuse, and the Salvation Army and the YMCA, the Sunday School, is all an outgrowth of awakenings. Awakenings have been used of God to turn a nation to righteousness. And when God gets a hold of a nation, the social issues in the nation and the political issues in the nation are automatically taken care of. Mary, Queen of Scots, said, I fear the prayers of John Knox more than all the armies of France. I wonder if there is a Southern Baptist in this country that the United States Congress fears because he prays. I haven't met any, but I believe that is God's requirement. That we go before God and pray for national righteousness. Secondly, he desires the salvation of all men. He desires, verse 4, that all men would be saved. You see, successful evangelism is an outgrowth of prayer. Successful evangelism is an outgrowth of prayer. And evangelism is merely going out into the fields that are white into harvest and picking up the spoils of war that have been won through prayer. Let me submit this to you. I don't believe anybody's ever been saved that hadn't been prayed for. Because I think you've got to break through the, the blinders and the darkness that Satan puts over a man's heart in his fallen nature, and you've got to ask God to open his eyes. And until God opens his eyes, he can't be saved. I'll tell you when you'll be successful in visitation. It's when visitation is bathed in prayer. It's not just taking a card and going out and knocking on a door and trying to talk a guy into something. Not just trying to convince him to join your church or to join this church, but it is talking to a man on the basis of his need for Jesus Christ and that has been bathed in prayer and you have sent the Holy Spirit out to knock on that door long before you ever got there. Praying for the salvation of all men. D.L. Moody went and preached in a church in England. He gave the invitation, preached a simple gospel message. He gave the invitation and almost every member of the church came down to be saved. He sent them back. He thought they didn't understand him. D.L. Moody did not have a, uh, was not an eloquent man, didn't even have a sixth grade education. He sent them back and explained the gospel to them again. And they all came down. And he turned to one of the elders. He said, I don't understand this. What's going on? Do these people not understand my message? And they took him out of there and to a one-bedroom apartment where a little crippled elderly woman lived. When they went through the door, D.L. Moody recounts that it was as if the glory of God had fallen. Never having met this woman, this woman raised up in her bed and said, Oh, Mr. Moody... You have come, you have come, and it has happened. God has told me it has happened, and the glory of God has fallen on my church. One little elderly lady and a whole church saved. God desires the salvation of all men. In prayer, we resist the power of Satan. We release the power of God, and we reclaim the souls of men. Thirdly and lastly and briefly, the conditions of prayer the conditions of prayer. Verse 8, he talks about lifting up holy hands without wrath and without doubtings. Three things. Our condition for prayer is without defilement. Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. It is without defilement, holy hands. And the hands symbolize the heart. Let me ask you, are your hands 
holy today? Do, do you come before the Lord without any hidden agendas, without any politicking, without any mixed motives, without any desire for fame or prestige? Do you come before God with holy hands, undefiled hands, no mixed motives, no desire for recognition, no desire for the acclaim of men, just pure hands and a pure heart. He uses another word there. He says without wrath. That means without disharmony. Without disharmony. That one's tough. When I was uh, dealing with your pulpit committee and we were talking, one of the men, uh, I won't tell you which one, but one of the men that wrote a recommendation, we were talking about uh, the nine of them coming to an, a unanimous agreement on all of this. And he made the statement to me. He said, you know, if you can get nine Baptists to agree on anything, it's a revival. <laughs> without wrath, without anger, Did you come to church this morning with a grudge against anybody? Did you come with a mixed motive about how you feel about somebody? Have you quit praying for somebody because they disagreed with you? Have you quit talking to somebody because they disagreed with you? Is there somebody you just as soon wish they'd move their membership and go somewhere else? Have I gotten any toes lately? Without wrath. No bitterness, no stronghold of anger, no disharmony, no sense in which we come before the presence of God in prayer and when we come together as a church, when we say, now, Lord, hear my prayers, and God says, what about old brother so-and-so that sits back there that you hadn't talked to because y'all got mad at each other one night in the committee meeting? Well, let's not talk about that, Lord. We've got other matters to discuss. You see, God says that for warfare praying to be effective, it has to be without wrath, without disharmony. Friends, they'll know we are Christians by our love. The Scripture does not say, Behold how they club one another. The Scripture says, Behold how they love one another. And I'll tell you, when God's Spirit brings unity to a people and harmony in a church. You couldn't keep lost people away with a machine gun at the front door. Amen. They'll come because they're hungry to see a church that loves. That's what they want to see. They want to see people that love each other without disharmony. And then lastly, he says, without doubting or dissension, without thinking back and forth. I want you to turn, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 62. We're almost through. You've been listening patiently. While you're turning to Isaiah chapter 62, I want to give you a personal illustration. <clears throat> February the 21st, of this year, 
one of my closest friends was in to speak for a men's wild game banquet. We affectionately call it the wild men's game banquet. Um, he was in to speak for this banquet where we had a lot of men who brought in game and stuff, and some of the men were gamey, when you really want to think about it. Uh, but we had had this guy come in to speak, and so we were sitting in my house about 10 o'clock one night upstairs in our den, and, and we were talking, and I was sharing with him some of the things that I was going through. God had been taking me through a period of brokenness. Uh, I'd made the mistake of preaching on brokenness, and I'm smart enough to know that when you preach on something, God takes you through it, and I should have known better. We were about four or five weeks into brokenness, and God was just really tearing at my heart about some things in my own life. And I was being broken, and I sensed God doing some things in some of our people. So I began to relate to him about some of my frustrations. There was a sense in which there was a wall between the pulpit and the pew. There was a sense in which you could preach, but it would almost just stop at that wall. In fact, I had two former staff members tell me that, that uh, the church was one thing during the worship service and another thing during the invitation. And I was finding that to be true. And I didn't know what to do about it. I didn't know if to beg or plead or lay guilt. I didn't know what to do. But there was, this, there was just this barrier, and it was, a, it was almost a, a curtain that would come across during the invitation. And so he said, we need to go up and pray. There's some things that have been built up in your church all through the years. And see, I'd heard all this, but I'd just not let it register in the spiritual realm yet. I'd had people come up to me and tell me, well, you know, Brother so-and-so was our pastor in 1948, and he came in and he did this, and I'll tell you what, he'll, he'll never come back and preach in this pulpit. I mean, I heard that kind of stuff. You know, 1948. And so shortly after this, we, we had a major campaign in our church called Get Over It. You know, I mean, you would... You know, I mean, at some point, you just get over it. In 1948, I mean, that's a long time to carry a lot of excess baggage around. And then I began to hear other things, and just a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Almost every former pastor, and it did just something had come along and something had alienated this person, alienated that person. So my friend and I sat down and prayed, and I said, what do you think we ought to do? He said, well, I think we ought to do two things. He said, I think you ought to pray about the sins of the pulpit. And I said, what do you mean? He said, I think you ought to pray and ask God to forgive those, all of us, including me. He said, start with yourself. And I said, great, thanks. It's easier to start with these other guys. Uh, he said, start with yourself and pray about anything that anybody in the pulpit might have unknowingly done to lead people to do something outside the will of God or to in any way hurt anybody. And folks, I got down to pray, and I thought, well, I'll just kind of go through this. And God just began to break my heart, and he began to break it more. And, and there's probably still a spot there on that carpet where I just laid there and just cried before the Lord and just laid out my heart to God. And I confessed things that I had done in the flesh. And God began to bring to mind some of these things that had happened where there was an offense against the pulpit. And I just prayed, and I laid it out before God. Then my friend went to the pews, and he prayed for the sins of the pew where people in the pew had not responded right. Shortly after that, I asked our church. They wouldn't do it, but I asked them. I said, you know, God will never come down in glory in this place 
until we bring one former pastor that I knew in particular, I said, until we bring him back and apologize to him for the way we treated him. One of my men came to me and said, well, he doesn't deserve an apology. I said, the issue is not what he did. The issue is, did you react with the spirit of Jesus to what he did? Amen. And he prayed for the sins of the pew. I want you to know from February the 21st until this past Sunday, there have only been about three services where we haven't had college age and older people saved. Adults, 50, 60-year-old people walking the aisle, coming under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And you know why? Because we got beyond the physical realm we saw that the battle was in the spiritual realm and we began to pray and seek God. Right now, in Ada, Oklahoma, our college minister is preaching. And in a room, right behind the choir room, there's some men who have not heard a sermon in about four months because all they do during the worship service is pray. They pray for every aspect of the worship service. I know on any given day when I get up that I have 30 or 40 people who are doing intensive praying for me. As bad a shape as I'm in, they need to do it. But folks, I want you to know it has come not because we got a flashy program out of Nashville. It has come not because we got more organized. We're organized now. It has come because a remnant of the body has grabbed hold of the principle of prayer and getting before God in prayer. And you found Isaiah chapter 62. I want you to stand to your feet, please, and let me read that scripture to you. Let's begin with verse 1. Isaiah 62, verse 1. For Zion's sake... Will I not hold my peace? And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest until the righteousness thereof go forth as brightness and the salvation thereof as a lamp that burneth. And the Gentiles shall see thy righteousness and all kings thy glory. And thou shalt be called by a new name which the mouth of the Lord shall name. Now look at verse 6. I have set watchmen upon the walls, O Jerusalem, which shall never hold their peace day nor night. Ye that make mention of the Lord, keep not silence, and give him no rest till he establish and till he make Jerusalem a praise in the earth. Now I want you to notice verses 6 and 7. He has set watchmen on the walls to not hold their peace. They are men and women who will not let go of God day or night. Around the clock, people on the walls watching and praying that they will make mention of the Lord and not keep silent. Lord, we're not going to let you go to sleep. We're not going to let you forget us. We're going to keep bombarding your throne with our prayers and give him no rest till he establish and till he make Albany. I wonder if that says that in the Hebrew. Until he make Albany a praise in the earth. Ladies and gentlemen, the call of God on your life 
is to give God no rest until His glory comes in such a way that He establishes this church and this community as a praise in all the earth. Let's pray together. I'm going to ask just the choir to be singing and the staff to be here at the front. You already know the decision that you need to make. Some of you may need to come and join this local church by transfer of your letter. Some of you, people have been praying for you. People in this room have prayed for you, interceding on your behalf that you might be saved. And today, God has spoken to your heart. Some of you just need to come and make a commitment to be a prayer warrior. Ladies and gentlemen, it will not happen because you bring a preacher. It will not happen when you get a full staff. It won't happen if you pay off all the debt. It won't happen if you reorganize, plan, and program. It'll happen when the people of God get on their face before God and seek Him till His glory comes. That's when it'll happen. I'm going to pray. The choir's going to sing. You're going to remain with your heads bowed. If you need to get out from the pew and walk down these aisles and talk to one of these staff members, you do that. Father, I thank you for power that comes through prayer and through the preaching of your word. And I pray for obedience in your people this morning, for I pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Heads